0: The last investigator I met with was Dr. Gary Dang, director of the Integrative Oncology Service at Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center, and to demonstrate his specific interest, he presented a woman with lung cancer he evaluated in consultation. Here's a
1: 56-year-old woman with stage 4 adenocarcinoma of the lung, and the patient is taking erlotinib and fortunately responding. However, you know, when patients talking to the oncologist, she knows it's a very hard-to-treat disease. There are cases that uh, patients may develop resistance and so on. In addition, she feels like there are some side effects from erlotinib and she wants to take some herbs and supplements to detox and boost the immune system because she thought... Any chemo or cancer treatment will suppress the immune system and put toxins into her body.
0: Did she come by herself or anyone else? She come with family,
1: with her husband.
0: Could you talk a little bit more about her, her background, what kind of work she's doing, and why she had this interest?
1: She is in the advertising industry, and she's well-educated, very sophisticated, read a lot, and she has always been taking this approach of a natural approach to health. She watched her diet. She do all the things that are supposed to promote wellness. So she has a natural tendency towards these things. On the other hand, she's also well-read. And he learned about all kinds of unconventional therapies or herbs and supplements on the internet. So she is very interested in exploring these.
0: Had she ever used any type of alternative or complementary strategies before she had cancer?
1: She has always been taking supplements, most of the time her life. So when she was put on Erlotinib, the oncologist told her, you need to stop all these supplements. She said, no, I don't want to because they have been keeping me well, and I really don't feel good not taking them. And then the oncologist said, well, I think you should talk to our integrative medicine people so they can explain to you why this can be harmful. And maybe there's something else they can offer to you.
0: It's interesting that the oncologists brought it up. What fraction of the people you see are referred from oncologists as opposed to self-referral?
1: 90% of them are referred by oncologists. Hmm. Because over the years, we have worked closely with oncologists in our institution, the Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, so that they know we are very readily available resource for them to handle some of these problems that usually are not equipped or they don't have the time to handle.
0: Now, at the point you saw her, how long had she been taking the erlotinib, and was she having any skin problems or any toxicity from it?
1: Yes, she has some mild, she has been taking it for like three months or so, and the most recent CT shows she did have a response. And she has some mild skin changes, rash, acne, and so on, but nothing severe. Another thing she feels is she just feels tired after taking the arotinib. So she thinks that's because it's the toxin. So she wants to detox and also
0: boost the immune system. Just out of curiosity, before you get into the advice you gave her about this, I'm kind of curious. I know there's a lot of interest. You have Dr. Mario Lecouteur there who's very interested in the idea of dermatologic side effects of cancer therapy, for example, or EGFR inhibitors like cytoximab, and he has his, you know, magic potions and strategies and all this. But what about complementary strategies for dermatologic problems?
1: There are some herbal or botanical topical agents has been studied and they have been studied for, for two situations. One is hand foot syndrome from capsidabine, and the other one is these tyrosine kinase inhibitors like acne and rash and so on. But the study were done in other countries. You know, specifically, for example, the herbal mixture topically applied to the hands and foot was done in China. So it was never rigorously studied in a much more controlled setting. And so there is an interest of studying these things. On the other hand, these natural products, even though they're topical agents, are very hard to study because they consist of hundreds, if not more, of compounds. And it's hard to say which one is the one that is responsible. And so the previous study on this particular topical agents, their hypothesis is more like an anti-inflammatory kind of agent. So we want to see whether they can be used On the other hand, we really don't know what exactly are there and what are the active ingredients.
0: So what specifically did you discuss with this lady in terms of her wishes to, quote, detox and boost her immune system?
1: So when people come in with these questions, there is usually a more fundamental psychological needs which is to do more than just getting the therapies they're getting from their oncologist. So there's a patient empowerment movement and patients wish to do more and participate actively in their care. So that's the first thing we have to recognize. And at the end of the day, we have to address that. If we don't, they will say, oh, I don't take this. And then they'll start taking something else because there is a void there. So first is to recognize, acknowledge patients' desire to do more. So that's the first step. And then the second step is to clarify some of the myths or misconceptions that are out there from patients. For one example, they always think anything natural is safe and anything synthetic is toxic. So they perceive erlotinib as a chemotherapy being toxic. And also they heard all these stories of chemotherapy suppressed immune system but they really don't know the exact mechanism of action of erlotinib, which is not known as an immune suppressant. However, that's their perception. And so we have to clarify that and talk to them in a language they can understand to show this is not the traditional sense of chemo.
0: This lady, at the time that you saw her, was she taking anything at that point herself? She was not, because she
1: did listen to the oncologist saying, don't take anything until you see the integrated medicine people. So she was not, but when she walked in, she does want to do
0: more. So it's interesting that she held off you know, until she was able to discuss it with her physician. I know there have been surveys of patients. I don't know what the latest data is, but what do we know right now about what people are doing right now and whether or not doctors, oncologists are even aware of what they're doing?
1: I think things have changed in the last 10 years. Ten years ago, probably the oncologists would just say, don't take anything, and then maybe in a more dismissive way, and the patient would preferring offending their doctor, just say, fine, but then they may not listen to them and still do their own thing at home. So there is a communication breakdown. I think nowadays, the oncologists are much more aware of this problem. So they usually tell people with a very open-minded way, and also the manner they talk to patients is important. So in this case, the oncologists say, well, we do recognize your wish to do these things, and we do have a resource to help you sort through so that you can still do something that can be helpful, but avoid things that can be harmful. So when the oncologists take this kind of attitude, the patients are more likely to be compliant.
0: So in terms of, quote, avoiding things that are harmful, the one thing that I think a lot of people have concerned about is whether any of these agents or substances might interfere with the cancer treatment itself. In the past chemotherapy, but now many other kinds of therapies, specifically in terms of tyrosine kinase inhibitors, she was on erlotinib, What do we know in terms of how, you know, some of these potential supplements, over-the-counter medications, et cetera, that they get, how they might affect metabolism or use of, let's start with TKIs. Yeah, that's the
1: main thing because a lot of these newer targeted agents are oral agents and they are not really active and they have to be metabolized by, for example, CYP enzymes in the liver. And a lot of these enzymes can be influenced by other things you're taking. In addition to drugs, there are many medications that are CYP inhibitors or enhancers, but lots of herbs can do that too. So when you take them concurrently, the herbs or supplements may conceivably raise the blood level of erlotinib or lower it. In either case, that's not what we want.
0: What about other forms of cancer therapy, chemotherapy? Obviously, there are many types of chemotherapy. Monoclonal antibodies, any sort of red flags out there in terms of, again, interaction between, let's say, supplements and any of these kinds of treatments?
1: The most common concerns we have one is the oral agents being metabolized, and not only chemo, including hormone therapy, tamoxifen, letrozole, and so on. So they may have a pharmacokinetic interaction, which means changing the blood level and metabolism of drugs. Other herbs and supplements may have a direct effect compromising the therapeutic, anti-cancer therapeutics. One example is some of the alkylating chemotherapy agents, like Mm -hmm. the cisplatin, carboplatin, so on. They, mechanistically speaking, high-dose antioxidants runs the risk of neutralizing some of their effects on the DNA of the tumor cells. So conceivably, especially if you're taking high-dose antioxidants, that's a concern of compromising the efficacies.
0: We're hearing a lot about immunotherapy, particularly checkpoint inhibitors. Any connection between efficacy and you know complementary strategies with those kinds of agents? That we don't know for sure. There
1: are some speculations. For one thing, these agents are very new, so there has not been a lot of experience we have using them concurrently. But mechanistic speaking, you may say, some of these anti-inflammatory herbs may suppress some of these immune reaction that you want to enhance. Or some of the so-called immune boosters or immune enhancers may make the effect stronger so you got more autoimmune side effects. But these, we don't really have evidence either way. It's just speculation based on the mechanism of action.
0: When you talk about, quote, immune you know complementary strategies, I mean, Do we have any evidence that there's anything out there that's being used in a complementary or alternative way that actually does affect the immune system? There are many,
1: especially, for example, mind-body therapy, stress reduction. We do know chronic stress, stress hormones, or all that are known immune suppressant. And there are many studies of those therapies, like yoga or meditations, showing you can actually lower some of the inflammation markers and lower some of the stress hormones and increase, for example, NK cells activity and so on. But we don't have any clinical endpoints. Most of those studies shows these complementary therapies help the immune system by looking at immunological biomarkers.
0: And when you were talking before about the theoretical possibility that one of these supplements or agents could interfere with metabolism, is that sort of theoretical, or are there any scientific data specifically about specific agents?
1: The interaction of the pharmacokinetics is not theoretical. There are experiments done, pharmacokinetic study done, administrating the chemo, for example, irinotecan, and then administer the herb, and then check the blood level of irinotecan alone, and it was found to have either elevation or some of the herbs will drop the level. So that is not a theoretical concern. It is shown and supported by human early phase one kind of trials data.
0: So going back to this lady, can you talk about, you know, sort of how you counseled her and approached her specifically? So the first thing we do is to
1: establish our credibility and enlist trust and rapport, showing we are on her side. We're not here just to dismiss her concerns. So our best intention is for her not to get harmed by lowering the efficacy of allotinib, especially since it's working. So that's the first step. The second step is to establish credibility. So when we talk about whatever herbs she's interested in, and when we talk about allotinib metabolism, we talk in such a way that she has confidence we know what we're talking about. If she asks for an herb, For example, St. John's wort or another herb that astragalus. We have to tell them, you know, yes, we know about this herb. This is what's known, what has been studied. Here are the active ingredients. Here the experiment has been shown how they influence drug metabolism. And so when you do it this way, it's much better than saying, oh, just don't take anything because it will hurt you. Because they will challenge you. And if you do not have a follow-up counter argument they're not going to believe you and listen to you
0: so could you talk a little bit more about your specific discussions with this lady and sort of what you recommended to her so in this lady we said first of all this is
1: a oral drug it's metabolized by the liver and converted and there are many herbs and supplements that will change that process and you probably don't want to do that because you are responding and you're the few lucky one actually with stage four lung cancer responding to a therapies. And secondly, this is not a chemotherapy. So it's not the classic sense of toxins that you think it does you so much harm. And thirdly, to boost the immune system in some way, it's a misnomer because you can say everything you do helps the body boost the immune system. For example, if you're malnourished or you're dehydrated, your immune system is probably not going to be robust. So in that case, eating a balanced diet or drinking fluid would be boosting your immune system. And there are a lot of these lifestyle changes that you can do. For example, nutrition, stress management, good sleep, and physical activity. All these will boost the immune system without running the risk of interfering with your drug treatment.
0: But you identified that this lady, it sounds like she kind of wants to go to the next level in terms of trying to take some control or do something to help herself. Did you sort of leave it at that general kind of concept of, you know, good nutrition, et cetera, Or did you have any specific recommendations for her so what she could do? We do have follow-up very specific recommendations
1: because that's a different topic. Because for that, we do an intake about their understanding of what the proper nutrition is, and we identify deficiencies, and then we give them specific advice. And so we do have very specific advice to give. In addition, we offer these clinical programs, get them enrolled in some of these stress reduction classes or exercise classes, and so on, to give them the tools to learn and do these things.
0: Do you find people are interested, and in, there's kind of this intuitive concept, I can remember hearing about this back even in medical school, about the sort of the ability of the mind or visualization to affect cancer. I don't know whether this woman or you find that patients bring that up, again, as something that they can do. And do we have research on that kind of a strategy, you know, somehow imagining the tumor being under control?
1: Not in this lady, she didn't really bring that up, but we have other patients who say positive thinking and they imagine the cells attacking the cancer cells and so on. We tell them these positive thinking are not going to shrink the tumor, but if they help you fight the disease, make you feel stronger, more resilient, and also reduce your anxiety and stress, go for it. But as we know, the research many years ago, there were provocative research showing stress reduction leads to better outcome in terms of survival in cancer patients. I don't think that has been replicated. But on the other hand, there are laboratory studies, you know, for example, animal models where when they stress the cancer-bearing mice, the cancer appears to grow faster. And when they look under the microscope doing the mechanistic study, they found chronic level a high level of adrenaline appears to stimulate angiogenesis and when you block that process with beta blockers or such as propanolol you can actually restore or suppress this stress induced cancer growth in mice does that happen in human we don't know and i think it is very hard to do this kind of experiment or clinical trials. How do you do a randomized control trial and stress one group of cancer patients and let the other group not? It's hard. So I think regardless whether stress or stress reduction change cancer biology, it is never a good thing for patients to be under stress, if not for cancer, but for cardiovascular disease that we know for sure, stress is not gonna be helpful.
0: You referred earlier to the concept of mindfulness Is that something that you frequently bring up to patients? And actually, what is it? I've heard that term mentioned. And do you have any kind of structured approach to it?
1: Yes. Mindfulness is just a method or one of the school of thoughts or approach to mind-body medicine or stress reduction techniques. So the whole point of mindfulness is instead of following the thought process, you watch the thought process in a non-judgmental way and staying at the present. Because most of the time these patients are anxious or they're angry, it's because their thoughts kind of dwell and circle around a past event or what may or may not happen in the future, like the impending recurrence or the poor prognosis of this advanced disease. So when we talk about mindfulness, we try to make their mind stay in the present moment and appreciate what they have, and instead of dwelling too much on the past and the future, which... They really don't have control. You cannot change the event. And by doing so, by training them this ability, they are able to shut down or shut off the wandering thoughts that they themselves don't like, but they just couldn't help but thinking about those bad things.
0: So do you have a way, a structured way that you teach this to patients? Do you have a video or booklet or what?
1: Yeah, there are many programs. A video and so on would be an introduction. But the full program is probably required for patients to learn this. So one of the most well-studied mindfulness mind-body therapies is called MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. There are many randomized control trials, meta-analysis, systematic review done on that. It's quite well-established. It helps reduce stress, anxiety, and distress in cancer patients. So if patients have the cursory interest or no past experience, we already give them like a taste, just an introduction. And for a lot of patients, this is just not their thing. They just don't have any interest at all. Then we try to find other ways to help them deal with stress. For people who are really interested in this, we introduce them to this full program, like the MBSR program. It's an eight-week structured program to teach patients learning these skills.
0: This lady, was she a smoker or non-smoker? Non-smoker. So like a lot of people with EGFR mutations. And, you know, had she had symptoms from the disease
1: itself? Not really. She had basically a silent disease. It was incidental finding from her chest x-ray. And because she never had any serious illness before, she always thought she took good care of herself, she eats healthy, she used all these supplements that she thinks kept herself in good health. So it was quite a surprise to her. That's another reason they want to explore everything and anything that may be helpful.
0: So, you know, it's very interesting in lung cancer, the dynamic in the smokers and the non-smokers. In the non-smokers, you know, naturally a lot of questions, you know, maybe sometimes anger or resentment. Were you able to pick anything up? You mentioned she always attempted to, you know, be healthy. What was her reaction and was there anything you tried to do to help her sort of deal with it? In this case, She's, other than her trying
1: to do more to help her, she was actually, as I mentioned, very sophisticated, well-educated lady, and she was actually doing quite well otherwise. So for this particular case, we actually didn't do a lot more than that. But for patients who are really distressed by this bad disease, we usually offer them these specific stress reduction techniques.
0: You know, I know you also are interested in the issue of palliative care and end-of-life care, and... Of course, in lung cancer, we have actually some data suggesting even a survival benefit. Theoretically, certainly benefit of early palliative care, and you know from the beginning of diagnosis of metastatic disease. And this lady is a good example of the fact that a lot of people, when they're first diagnosed, really are not that sick, and they're not really having that many symptoms from the disease. She sounds like she's not even having that many symptoms from the treatment. But I guess the one source of morbidity that these patients have is the knowledge that they have a disease that's not curable. That's true. And I'm curious, we were talking about mindfulness before, but again, any strategies that you found that help people adapt to this very challenging knowledge that they have? I think for that,
1: it takes a multidisciplinary approach. So the program level, your patients would benefit from psychiatric care, the involvement of palliative care at the beginning, and also social workers and complementary integrated medicine. And my experience is there's no one-size-fits-all program. So the first thing usually we do is we have an intake of patients to look at their preference. And there are people who just don't want to have some of the things we offer, and that's fine. But there are patients who are very passionate about this complement therapy, so we have to tailor a program for them. So I think there's no straight answer to that. The bottom line is it takes many players, a multidisciplinary teen approach to help them.